to the External Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Belkin, and this is my co-host and brother, Mitch Belkin. We're resident physicians interested in medical innovation. This podcast is our attempt to explore new ideas currently on the outskirts of medicine. This is not professional medical advice. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. We do not endorse any healthcare providers or treatments. Our views do not represent the views of any official organization or institution. If you'd like to support us, subscribe to our podcast or leave us a review. Or you can follow us on Twitter at EXMedPod and tell your friends. All right. We are here with Dr. Saik. Kathy Rayson, a cardiologist, geneticist, and the CEO and co-founder of Verve Therapeutics. Verve Therapeutics is a company pioneering a new approach to the treatment of cardiovascular disease with single-dose gene-editing medications. Prior to co-founding Verve, he served as the director of the Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Genomic Medicine, and he was a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He is an accomplished researcher, on the genetics of cardiovascular disease, and he has over 150,000 citations. Sake, welcome to the External Medicine Podcast. Daniel and Mitch, it's a pleasure to be here. So before we get started, do you have any financial disclosures? Yes, as you mentioned, I'm a co-founder of Verb Therapeutics and hold equity in that company. Uh, I'm also an officer, uh, the chief executive officer of the company, and on its board of directors. All right. So for people who are just hearing of you and your company for the first time on this episode of the External Medicine Podcast, how would you describe your professional background and intellectual interests for the last 10, 15 years? Yeah. So I'm a cardiologist by training, um, and I've worked on one scientific problem pretty much my whole career, which is coronary artery disease. And initially, the first... um, Decade or so of my career, I learned how to take care of patients uh, with cardiovascular disease. Um, and then uh, the subsequent uh, decade or so, uh, did research on the genetic basis for heart attack, both risk as well as resistance. And then most recently, uh, been able to take uh, those insights from the research and develop and try to develop a new medicine, a new type of medicine uh, to treat uh, coronary heart disease. Uh, so it's really, um, uh, you know, on the full gamut from clinical care uh, to discovery research now to translation to uh, new medicines. Before we dive into some of your research, uh, it might be good to give a little bit of a primer on the pathophysiology of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Could you walk us through a little bit about where cardiovascular atherosclerotic disease comes from? Yeah, so if you take a broad umbrella, a broad broad um, a topic of, of cardiovascular disease, uh, there are different types, as you know. And one major type is atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Uh, that specifically refers to essentially cholesterol-driven blockages in, in various arteries in, in the body, um, uh, the coronary arteries um, being uh, maybe the most serious um, and, um, and, and the consequence of that um, blockage, uh, which is typically um, uh, acute death of heart tissue, uh, a heart attack or myocardial infarction. 
Um, this disease um, is has two phases um, and a chronic phase where over several decades, uh, there is buildup of plaque in the wall of the artery, again, driven um, by cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, uh, and um, uh, leading to an inflammatory reaction in the wall of the artery. Uh, that takes, as again, several decades. Um, but then at a given time point, there's an acute uh, phase of the disease where um, there is uh, the inner lining of that artery where the blockages kind of burst open, uh, exposing the flowing blood to the subendothelial collagen and other gunk that's in the plaque. And that triggers um, a blood clot to form right at that spot. And if that blood clot stays there for more than about 20 minutes, um, then um, there can be a depth of heart tissue, for example, served by that artery. Um, and that depth of heart tissue is an acute myocardial infarction or more commonly known as heart attack. And, um, and that depth of heart tissue uh, you know, has, has, can lead to problems, including uh, in about half the, half the cases of heart attack, uh, sudden death. Um, so that's the, that's the process. Um, now, it's a chronic disease uh, punctuated by these you know, acute episodes. Um, and uh, there are several factors uh, that drive the disease. Uh, but probably the, the uh, you know, the, the, I would say the most important one, um, the kind of sine qua non, um, is LDL. Uh, it's absolutely required. Uh, and probably the major insight that we learned uh, from all the human genetics work that we and others did over the over last 10, 15 years is that if one's LDL cholesterol is really low, it's very hard to get a heart attack. And what I mean by very low, I mean like 20, 30, lifelong. Um, and how do we know that? Well, we found people who naturally had LDL cholesterol low in like 20 milligram deciliter, 30 milligram deciliter, lifelong. And they rarely developed a heart attack, if at all. And so this taught us that, hey, this is the answer to coronary artery disease. Get somebody's LDL really low and keep it there for their whole life. Uh, and that's really the goal of VERF. When people talk about cholesterol, there are lots of other words that people hear about. They hear about HDL, LDLC, ApoB, LP little a, triglycerides. Can you just sort of disentangle those different terms from one another, just so that we have an idea when when we're talking cholesterol? What what are these? Who are these other players, and what are they? It's a great doing? question, Daniel. So um, the way to think about it is. Um, cholesterol and triglycerides, so those two different types of molecules, are really important for lots of cellular functions, okay? Um, cholesterol has a certain structure. Um, triglycerides or triacylglycerol has a different structure. And, you know, many people learn about these things in, in you know, basic biochemistry. Those are two substances, again, required for energy and cellular metabolism, um, and basically every cell in the body, most cells in the body require uh, these substances. Now, these are fats, so they don't dissolve in water. And um, so the blood is mostly water. And so these substances, they don't dissolve in blood. And as I mentioned, all these different cells all over the body need these substances. So the body has a transport system for these substances to get them to the different cells all over the body. That transport system is called a lipoprotein. And it has a certain structure. 
which is that the lipids, cholesterol, triacylglycerol, are carried in the middle, okay? And then there's a coat, a phospholipid monolayer coat, like a little shell right around the lipid. And then there's a protein that is embedded on the surface of that coat, okay? And the, all the lipoproteins have the same, very similar structure to this. They differ in what's the lipid that's carried in the middle and what's the protein that's on the surface. So overall, again, lipoproteins are body's transport system for these essential substances and transport through the bloodstream. And they can be categorized into three broad uh, classes. Um, one is, and the names are differentiated based on the density of the particle and on what lipid they carry, it carries, okay? Um, so one is HDL, high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, high-density lipoprotein. High-density lipoprotein, HDL, in the middle is mostly cholesterol, and the protein on the surface is called apolipoprotein A1 or ApoA1, okay? So that's HDL. Then there are a series of lipoproteins that are called ApoB-containing lipoproteins, and that's because they contain ApoB on the surface. That's the um, protein in the coat. And the names of those ApoB-containing lipoproteins are LDL, low-density lipoprotein, triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, or TRLs, and then there's lipoprotein little a, which you mentioned. And how those three differ is in the middle of LDL is mostly cholesterol. In the middle of triglyceride-rich lipoproteins is, as the name says, mostly triglycerides. And then lipoprotein little a is basically a cousin of LDL. It looks very much like LDL, but it has, instead of just ApoB on its surface in the terms of protein, it has ApoB attached. There's another protein called ApoA, okay? So it sounds complicated, but it actually is less so in the sense that you can distill all of this into essentially just two groups. There's the ApoA1-containing lipoprotein, which is HDL, and then there's everything else. And those are all called ApoB-containing lipoproteins because LDL, triglyceride lipoproteins, and LPLA all have ApoB on the surface. And the way to remember all this, Daniel, is B for bad, okay? ApoB is everything that has ApoB on it is the bad stuff, is the stuff that causes atherosclerosis, okay? So that's LDL, that's triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, and that's LPLA. And that's, those are the three substances that you want really low in your body. In fact, if all three of those were really low lifelong, like, as I said, it's almost impossible to get a heart attack. It's possible to develop an MI or atherosclerosis. So um, that's basically a short primer on lipoproteins. So right now, there are a number of different medications in our arsenal to lower LDL and the other ApoB-containing <clears throat> lipoproteins. What medications do we currently have to use at this time, and what are some of the limitations of those medications? So we have a um, number of medications to lower the blood LDL cholesterol. Um, and uh, uh, the first of those is statins. Uh, these are very um, well-studied, powerful medications to lower LDL. 
we have another class of medications um, to target the gene PCSK9. Um, these are injections that are given um, any, you know, a couple of times a month um, uh, to one of them is now given a couple of times a year. Um, and, and there are different modalities. There's a monoclonal antibody that targets PCSK9. There's also a siRNA, a silencing RNA that targets PCSK9. There's another pill um, uh, be, beyond statins. So statins, of course, are oral medications um, called azetamibe, which blocks cholesterol absorption. So that's another cholesterol-lowering medication. Um, so those are the major commonly used medications. So statins and azetamibe for um, uh, as far as oral medications go, and then these injections, uh, either PC, uh, targeting PCSK9. There are a couple of other um, medications, one called bempadoic acid, which is, again, another oral medication, which just kind of came on the scene, um, and it's just getting into clinical use. Um, and then a couple of other even less used uh, uh, oral medications. But uh, that's our arsenal right now. Those medications um, can be effective in lowering LDL. The challenge right now, Mitch and Daniel, is that despite all that's available, not enough patients are at their treatment goals. Um, it, you know, if you look at patients after a heart attack, after MI, all have established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. There was a recent study of 600,000 such patients in a single commercial healthcare plan. And believe it or not, less than half were on any LDL-lowering medication. That's despite having established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. If you look at this genetic disease called familial hypercholesterolemia, where the LDL is sky high based on genetics, globally, less than 3% of patients with FH, familial hypercholesterolemia, are actually at treatment. So one of the key questions that we should talk about is like, why is that the case? Like, why is it, despite all that's available, you know, very few of these patients are actually at treatment goal. That is the question. Before we get there, I want to just ask one or two more questions about cardiovascular disease and myocardial infarction. So most people know that there are modifiable risk factors for cardiovascular disease. They can eat better, they can stop smoking, they can exercise more. But when it comes to the genetics underlying myocardial infarctions, it's much less well-known. I mean, most people learn about familial hypercholesterolemia in medical school, but you've been studying ge the genetics of cardiovascular disease uh, for the last, you know, 20 years. What, what, have, what have we learned in the last 20, 30 years about the genes responsible for raising and lowering risk and monogenic risk versus polygenic risk? for cardiovascular disease? Yeah, so um, if you take a step back and, and, and think about the disease itself, so it's atherosclerosis, um, and again, at chronic phase and acute phase, uh, it's the most common cause of death in the world. Um, so very prevalent disease. Um, there are a, a number of risk factors that contribute to the disease, and one of them is inheritance. Um, so roughly 30, 40% of anyone's individual risk is coming from your genome, uh, from what you inherited from your parents. Um, what we've done over the, the last, you know, 10, 15 years is try to define, you know, specifically which letters in the genome are actually conferring risk and what's the model? How does it work? So what we've learned over the years on the risk side, and then I can go into the resistance side. On the risk side is 
there are basically two models of risk. Um, one is what's called the monogenic model, where what that means is a single letter, a single letter in one gene is sufficient or is plays a large role in conferring risk for disease. Um, in, then there's another model called the polygenic model, where the additive effect of many letters in the genome in aggregate can actually lead to disease. So let me walk you through the results of each of these two models. If you take patients with early heart attack and sequence their genomes, with, do, do the DNA sequencing, and compare that with people without heart attack and ask, okay, can I explain why this person had a heart attack at age 30 or 40 with a, based on a single letter in a gene? It turns out that there are a handful of genes that um, where these single mutations can confer large effect on risk. And the biggest player in that monogenic model is a gene called LDL receptor. So mutations in LDL receptor dramatically increase LDL cholesterol starting early in life at birth and can lead to heart attack at young ages, premature heart attack. There are a couple of other genes in the same category that lead to familial hypercholesterolemia, this genetic disease. And this is the biggest cause of monogenic risk. And the LDL receptor, that those are the ones that are located on the liver where they're uptaking them from the bloodstream. Yeah, the reason that, that these mutations in the LDL receptor increase blood cholesterol is normal role of LDL receptor is to actually clear the LDL from the blood and get, get it taken up by the liver cells, into liver cells. The LDL receptor sits on the surface of liver cells, literally binds to the blood LDL that's flowing across and takes it in. So the blood LDL comes down and then the liver takes it up. When you have mutations that basically decrease the LDL receptor by about 50% in, you know, in patients, if you have one mutated copy of the gene you inherited from your parents, then the blood LDL is higher because it's not getting taken up. So that's the biology, yes. And if the blood LDL is higher, then the arteries see that blood LDL over a lifetime and from early in life. And then that LDL gets trapped in the wall of the artery, leads to this inflammatory reaction that ultimately leads to the blockage that you know, can cause a heart attack. Um, so there's the monogenic model. The main gene is LDL receptor. There's a couple of other genes, ApoB and so forth. In addition, there are other genes, genes that raise triglycerides, another one of those ApoB-containing lipoproteins, and the genetic mutations that raise LP little a dramatically, the lipoprotein little a. That's basically the monogenic model. Now, it turns out if you take 100 patients with early heart attack and ask what fraction of them can you explain with this monogenic model, it's actually just it's a modest number, roughly, you know, 3%, you know, 4%. So the question then is, why else did every, why is everybody else having an early heart attack? Um, and you know, some of it, of course, lifestyle and so forth. But what about the genetic component? What else is going on? And this is basically the major our our major contribution to the literature is developing this polygenic model, and so really defining a, um, a uh, all the different letters that, when combined, each letter each variation can have a small effect, but an aggregate can lead to high, high degree of risk. And so what we were able to do is develop a score based on all the different letters in the genome, about 6 million different spots, so-called polygenic risk score. And 
calculate that score in lots of people. And the score is based on your genetic code. And the score, when you plot it, it's a bell-shaped distribution. So what we've been able to do, Daniel, is reduce one's you know, inherited risk into basically a single number that conforms to a Gaussian or normal distribution, like cholesterol or blood pressure. So then some people are high, some low, some in the middle, and those who are high on this polygenic score actually have much higher risk, almost the same risk as the monogenic model. And this now can explain actually a fair amount of the risk in, in, in those early heart attack patients, this polygenic model. So what, what's happening now is that people are trying now to develop a test, a clinical test to really get that score in the average person, um, you know, if they come to your office um, as a way to um, understand who's at increased risk. Because right now, this score um, is not calculated and it, it's not, does not, that risk conferred by this model is not captured by all the standard risk factors that we measure in practice, like blood pressure or LDL or, um, you know, uh, uh, other, other diabetes or other things. So um, this is a new prevention opportunity because if you knew, um, you know, somebody was high polygenic risk, then you may be able to help them in terms of lower that risk, modify that risk. So monogenic model, polygenic model um, explains the inherited component to coronary disease. For coronary disease, there's the inherited component. There's also all these other components, uh, blood pressure, smoking, you know, LDL, diabetes, family, um, uh, uh, you know, familial aggregation based on um, the genetics. Um, so those are all things that we can um, now uh, use to understand one's risk. So we've established at this point that cardiovascular disease is a huge problem and genes are important in that process. So I guess now let's switch over to talking about gene editing. The big development on the gene editing front over the last like 10 years is CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas9, CRISPR-Cas12. Uh, I think there's another variant of that that you were using in your company, but can you summarize what is CRISPR and how has this changed everything when it comes to, you know, the future of healthcare? Yeah, no, I'm happy to. Now, before I do that, I think that um, what I what I want to do is kind of um, give you um, uh, uh, some background on that resistance story, because it kind of leads into um, um, how we might use something like CRISPR to, to alter healthcare. So remember I mentioned that we looked at genetics and we looked at risk, but there's a flip to that, um, resistance. And this is something that a lot of people are interested in. Um, might you be naturally resistant to a given disease based on your genome? Normally when we think genetics, we think risk, but some people are actually naturally protected from disease, right? And that's actually become clear now, like in COVID, like, you know, some people like still haven't gotten COVID and they're like, oh, maybe it's something about their genome that they haven't gotten COVID. Um, so you can think about the same way for, for heart attack. Say, might some people be very resistant to heart attack and could that be due to their genome? So we looked at this and believe it or not, we found resistance mutations, we and others, in eight genes, eight different genes. And all these mutations, what they did was they lowered ApoB containing lipoproteins. So we did this unbiased search of the genome to figure out, oh, what confers resistance? And all these 
mutations that confer landed on LDL triglyceride-rich lipoprotein and LP little a genes, eight of them. And the, the mutations had all the same property, which is they turned off a ApoB-containing lipoprotein-raising gene. Basically, the, the mutations turned off an LDL-raising gene. And these people had uh, their LDL really low, lifelong LDL or triglycerides or lipoprotein A, and then therefore had reduced risk of heart attack, dramatically reduced, sometimes 80 90% reduced risk of heart attack. So why do we want to know about this? Why do you want to know about resistance? The main reason is these can serve as inspirations for the development of new medicines. Because if you could develop a medicine that mimicked the natural situation, these natural resistance mutations, then you might, you know, you've increased confidence that's going to work. You know, that's a big part of drug development, really raising that prior probability of success. So that's actually what happened with the PCSK9 antibodies, the antibodies that target PCSK9. One of those eight genes that harbor the resistance mutations is the PCSK9 gene. And roughly one in 50 blacks in the United States carried one of these resistance mutations that, that basically turned off one copy of the PCSK9 gene. As a result, these individuals had, you know, a fair bit lower cholesterol, LDL cholesterol lifelong, and had 70, 80% lower risk of myocardial infarction over their lifetime. So that said, okay, let's develop a medicine that would mimic those resistance mutations. And the monoclonal antibodies that target PCSK9 do just that. They neutralize the blood's PCSK9 and get rid of it from the circulation and therefore lower LDL. And those medicines now have been tested in patients. They lower LDL, they lower risk of heart attack. So these resistance mutations right, are there, we found them, they fall neatly into these genes, um, lipoprotein genes, they're all in the liver. So this is the work I was doing at the Broad Institute and Mass General Hospital in the mid-2000s going into the 2010s. And, and I shared the lab floor, Daniel, with, and Mitch, with uh, somebody named Feng Zhang um, at the Broad, uh, the 10th floor of the Broad. Feng is one of the early pioneers of CRISPR. Um, when CRISPR was discovered, um, uh, initial observations by um, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, uh, and, and pretty soon thereafter, Fung was on the scene as well. Um, and um, that was in 2012. So a couple of years later, uh, Fung and I were chatting and we're like, hey, why don't we you know, try to use CRISPR? to actually mimic those natural resistance mutations and turn off a cholesterol-raising gene in the liver. So what is CRISPR? Um, well, CRISPR is an enzyme that's in bacteria, and that is um, a kind of a molecular scissors. So it basically can cut DNA at a specific place based on a, a GPS localization kind of signal that you give. Um, that's called a guide RNA. So it's really like you give that system 20 letters, uh, 20 bases, and it will go find, you know, each base in the genome, as you know, is an A, C, G, or T. So you give it, you know, 20 of those, and it'll go find the place in the genome that matches those 20. 
So if that 20 was, you know, A, T, G, C, A, T, G, C, whatever, of the 20, then you give the guide RNA with that sequence, the enzyme, the CRISPR enzyme, plus the guide um, in the nucleus, believe it or not, will search chromosome by chromosome and find and scan literally across the bases to find that 20 base pair match. Once it finds that match, what CRISPR does is cuts. It literally will cut right at that spot. So this was a, a natural system in bacteria. It's used to cut viruses. Viruses are, you know, kill bacteria. So this is a bacterial defense system. And now it's been um, harnessed um, for all kinds of different uses because this is a RNA-guided endonuclease, so RNA-guided DNA cutting machinery. Um, and the way it can be used for therapeutics, of course, is now we can turn off a given gene in some part of the body by cutting that DNA sequence at, you know, by, by taking the system right to that one spot. And it's quite specific. It's based on that match. Um, and um, if you take that series of 20 letters, on average, you're not going to find another match in the genome, typically. So you can get very specific cutting. So that's CRISPR, um, the original CRISPR-Cas9. Now, that, that original system has been engineered for all kinds of other properties. And, um, and we can talk more about that. But that's a little bit of um, resistance mutations and then the CRISPR technology. Jumping back to the, some of the specific genes, you mentioned PCSK9, and one of the other ones that I know Verve is working on is ANG-PTL3. So right. on a like microscopic level, how exactly do these two genes lower LDL? What are they physically doing on hepatocytes? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, these eight genes, as I said, fall into three pathways. They're eight genes with the resistance mutations. Um, the three pathways are LDL, triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, and LPLA. Let's start with the, the, the LDL pathway. Um, that's the, the prototypical member there is, is um, PCSK9. What PCSK9 does, so remember we talked earlier about the LDL receptor on the surface of liver cells. Normally, the LDL receptor clears blood LDL by allowing liver cells to take up the LDL from the blood into the liver cell. What PCSK9 does, it's a regulator of the LDL receptor. What it normally does, Mitch, is it degrades the LDL receptor. So by degrading the LDL receptor, there's less LDL receptor on the surface of liver cells, less LDL uptake from the blood, more LDL in the blood. So this is what PCSK9 normally does. So in some sense, you can think of PCSK9 normally, normal biology, physiology, as a bad actor. Because what it's doing is degrading the LDL receptor and keeping the LDL in the blood, which leads to atherosclerosis. The people that have mutations that turn off the PCSK9 gene basically have less PCSK9. They don't degrade the LDL receptor. The LDL receptor stays on the surface of liver cells. 
So the LDL is lower in the blood. So that's the LDL biology and PCSK9 biology. So what you want to do is basically get rid of PCSK9. Now, on the ANGPTL3, this is a protein that puts a break on your body's ability to clear triglyceride-rich lipoproteins. So it's also naturally a bad actor. The way triglyceride-rich lipoproteins work is um, it's normally secreted by the blood as something called VLDL. And then there's enzymes on, in the bloodstream, called one called lipoprotein lipase, that basically chews up the triglyceride-rich lipoproteins in, that's carried in the, in the VLDL. And um, the triglycerides are liberated, uh, and the VLDL gets transformed into an LDL particle. And normally, uh, that lipoprotein lipase is a key enzyme in that whole process. And what ANGPTL3 does is it actually puts a break on lipoprotein lipase ability to clear that whole, to clear the triglycerides. So when you have ANGPTL3 around, there's basically more triglycerides in the blood and more LDL in the blood. And humans who naturally lack ANGPTL3, and we actually made this initial observation back in 2010 in my lab, we found a family in St. Louis who had LDL of 30, triglycerides of 20. And multiple people in the family had this. We sequenced them and figured out the reason they were so low is that these people lacked ANGPTL3 altogether. They were human knockouts for ANGPTL3. And that's the reason they had, and they were healthy and they had low LDL, low triglycerides. And, 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 and so this established ANGPTL3 as a clear, an important player in this biology, and that lack of ANGPTL3 was good for you, that it would lower LDL, lower triglycerides. The third gene, lipoprotein LA, is a very curious molecule. Um, no clear function identified yet. Um, and, uh, but, except when it's high, it causes atherosclerosis. Like I said, it's, it's, a, it's an LDL molecule with another protein attached to it. So it's like a, kind of a cousin of LDL. And high levels in the blood are, lead to atherosclerosis. And there are people walking around who have low levels because of mutations in the APOA gene, in the LPA gene, and, um, and, and they're protected from heart attack. So that's really three different pathways and the different genes and the different physiologies. So we have this technology of CRISPR. We have a guide RNA, which can help find a specific base on a 20 base pair long sequence and snipping the DNA there. But how do you actually get in vivo CRISPR to a hepatocyte? Can you talk a little bit about lipid nanoparticles and specifically getting this CRISPR technology to the liver? Yeah, I think once the CRISPR technology became, you know, was discovered and, and, and it was characterized, it became pretty cl clear quickly that this could be harnessed for therapeutics. Um, and one of the biggest challenges with therapeutics is delivery, is getting your medicine, whatever it is, whether it's siRNA, monoclonal antibody, even small molecules, you know, and CRISPR for sure, getting it to the right tissue and the right cell type um, that's responsible for the disease, you know? Um, and 
in our case, um, you know, all the action is in the liver. That's where most uh, cholesterol and triglycerides are made. And that's where they're, how they're regulated. The liver is the key organ. So, and now I mentioned to you that, you know, our goal was to turn off a given gene, a cholesterol raising gene. We have the targets, you know, PCSK9, NGPTL3, LPA. How are we going to get the gene editing machinery to the liver? Broadly, Mitch, for macromolecules like gene editing tools, there are a couple of different delivery approaches. One is virus. Another would be lipid nanoparticles. Viruses have been used over the years for delivery of gene therapy. So these are either mRNA sequences or um, protein sequences that, you know, need to be um, expressed over time, kind of the, um, uh, to fix a faulty gene. Um, uh, but viral, viral delivery, though it's been around for a while, has a lot of shortcomings, uh, mainly because it, it evokes an immune response by the body. And that can be challenging um, from a safety perspective. So a newer kit on the block in terms of delivery is lipid nanoparticles. When back in 2017, 18, as we were building Verve, starting to incubate it, uh, we decided to focus on lipid nanoparticles as the delivery technology. Um, what lipid nanoparticles are, basically it's four lipids that when you mix with something like RNA, you end up getting spontaneous formation of little fat bubbles with the RNA in the center and then the, um, the, the fat ball around it. It actually looks like a lipoprotein, <laughs> believe it or not, except there's a cargo in the middle, which is RNA negatively charged, and then the phospholipid monolayer comes around it. Um, and um, that's a lipid nanoparticle. They're small, you know, they're 100 nanometers in size, roughly, 100 or less. And when you um, in infuse these into the bloodstream, almost all of it is taken up by liver cells. And once inside liver cells, then the contents, the inside contents are released into the cytoplasm. And then we can talk a little bit about how that works, but basically then you can get the editing to happen ultimately. So that's a lipid nanoparticle. So this has been around for, you know, probably 15, 20 years. Um, and you know, again, as I said, in 2018, we elected to have as this as our delivery vehicle. Then 2020 comes around, COVID, and wouldn't you know it, the COVID vaccines look very much like our drug. Because COVID vaccines, as you know, is RNA packaged in a lipid nanoparticle, except it's injected sub-Q, not infused in IV. So um, lipid nanoparticles are now a very good delivery tool for a range of products, um, but particularly for gene editing to the liver. So that's a, a good background, I think, to start talking a little bit about your research. So last year you published an article on using CRISPR editing of PCSK9 in monkeys, which you, you know, I think you did this a few years ago, and this is a follow-up that, yeah, a few years 
down the line, they still have low LDL. Can you talk a little bit about that experiment and how it demonstrates the feasibility of using this technique in humans? Yeah, I'm um, happy to. Um, before I do that, let me just take one step back and say, like, remember, we started with this problem. Uh, you know, I mentioned I've only focused on this one problem my whole career, coronary heart disease. We have uh, what I think is the solution, which is to get somebody's LDL low lifelong. And um, we are now trying to do that, right, with what's called the chronic care model. We're trying to do that with asking somebody to take a pill daily for the rest of their life or take an injection twice a month for their whole life. As I mentioned, that's not happening. And there are lots of shortcomings for the chronic care model, including rigorous patient adherence, um, regular healthcare access is needed, financial costs, and so forth. So the idea we had was like, what if you could like ditch all that and just get a one-time treatment? Imagine that you got a one-time intravenous infusion your LDL was low, lifelong, and it was effective and safe. There you go. You know, that's the, that's the answer. So that's kind of what we set out to do, okay? So in 2018, it was a concept. The specific medicine we designed to accomplish this was an editor delivered as an mRNA, a guide RNA targeting the PCSK9 gene. Both of those packaged in a lipid nanoparticle. And the concept was we infuse into the bloodstream. Ultimately, it would go make a single spelling change in the DNA of the liver to turn off the cholesterol-raising gene, PCSK9, and LDL would come down after the gene's been shut off. Could we get this to work? It was all a concept in 2018. So we initially started in cells. Then we went to mice. And then we went to non-human primates, monkeys. And the experiment you're describing is the non-human primate experiment. And what we did was um, took a group of monkeys, treated them with this drug. And what we observed was, indeed, the drug did go to the liver. It did make a single spelling change in the DNA of the liver um, in the PCSK9 gene sequence. And it happened in, like, every liver cell. And as a consequence of that change, the, um, the gene was turned off. And the blood PCSK9 level, so the protein level made by the protein made by the gene, which is secreted into the bloodstream, that protein level came down by 90% at two weeks. The LDL cholesterol came down by 70% at two weeks. And then two years later, the LDL is still down 70%. So this truly looks like it's going to be a one and done. And um, the, the efficacy looks durable. Now, there are lots of other things we can talk about in terms of, you know, the editing. You're making the edit at that one spot. And this approach, by the way, is not the standard CRISPR. It's not the um, just cutting, but it's called base editing. It's kind of like a, you know, as I said, CRISPR systems have now been engineered into other versions that can do different things. What this system does, this base editing system does, is instead of cutting DNA, it's more like a pencil and eraser. You're directing the system to one spot, and then our base, the base editor we're using makes a, a single spelling change, takes an A at one spot. Imagine erasing out that A, 
and replacing it with a G. It's a chemical conversion of one letter to another letter at a one spot in the genome of 3 billion letters. And it works. Like, I, it's like it's science fiction, to be honest, to me, uh, when we started all this, but it works. And what we wanted to figure out was, okay, you're getting that editing at the on-target spot, but are you getting any editing elsewhere in the genome, so-called off-target editing? So we've looked at that extensively. And um, we do not find any evidence for our drug product for off-target editing in other, other locations in the liver cells. So this looks very specific. Um, and I think that's one of the key advantages of the drug product for 101. So after this infusion, is it also turning off PCSK9 in other parts of the body? It's just, you know, in the liver, it's actually affecting LDL? That's a great question. Um, are you getting any editing in other parts of the body? Because we're infusing this systemically, right? So we've looked at the so-called biodistribution of our drug. Exact question that you just asked, are you getting any edi editing elsewhere? So we've taken those monkeys, we've sacrificed them, isolated 23 different tissues, and asked, where are you getting editing beyond the liver? First of all, you're getting a very high level of editing in the liver. Almost every liver cell is edited. Then you're getting, we got a little bit of editing in two other tissues, Daniel, in spleen and in adrenal gland. Very low level, but editing at the PCSK9 on target spot and then nowhere else. Importantly, we're not getting editing of sperm or oocytes because that raises this whole other issue of so-called germline editing in terms of passing on that edit to future generations. We're not getting that. Um, now, getting back to this issue of the, the spleen and adrenal, is that an issue if we're editing, we're turning off PCSK9 in those two organs? And the answer is we think not. Um, the animals are fine, but more importantly, the humans, there are humans who completely lack PCSK9 in every tissue, those human knockouts, and they're fine. Um, so that's probably the best evidence that having this editing in other tissues is not a problem. I have a question about... So this whole system is based off of a guide RNA, very specifically being able to target one specific base. Is there any risk of guide RNA independent DNA editing? Yeah, that's a great question. So off-target editing um, comes in two flavors. One would be guide RNA dependent. That, you know, so the, the way, and the other is guide RNA independent, which is what you're asking. For guide RNA dependent, which is, what that means is that, okay, you're, the, 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 the system lands in the PCSK9 gene based on a match of those 20 bases, okay? Now, you could imagine that maybe um, the system will also land in another spot in the genome that's not, doesn't match all 20 bases, but what if it just matches 19 out of the 20? So it's close enough. So essentially, it's kind of like, a GPS signal getting to an incorrect address because it's off by one, one, one letter, you know, instead of 120 Beacon Street in Boston, it's 120 Beacon Street in Cambridge, Mass. Very close to each other. They're the same 120, same Beacon Street, but different towns, you know. So that can happen. 
Um, so that's guide dependent. And we've looked extensively at that. And that's what I'm saying doesn't have any, we don't see it. There's also guide independent. What if it just kind of lands somewhere else and does an edit of the DNA or even the RNA? We've looked at that as well by looking at whole genome sequencing of treated and untreated cells and RNA sequencing of treated and untreated cells and don't see any guide independent effects either. So one question I have is you infuse this medication into the, into the vasculature. It finds its way to the liver, edits most cells in the liver. How long do liver cells live? Yeah, so you're asking about liver regeneration. The liver is a, an organ that can regenerate. And um, the, the, the typical time of liver turnover, at least in primates, is on the order of a couple hundred days, you know, maybe to a few months. So during, um, during that time, all of the liver cells turn over. And what's, what we're seeing is durability in the monkey studies well beyond that, two, three years. So how is that happening? Well, that gets to the question of what, what cells are the source of liver turnover? And um, it turns out the cells that are responsible for liver turnover are mature hepatocytes. So what's happening is when we come in and edit in the beginning, we're editing every, every mature hepatocyte, every cell. And so those mature hepatocytes are the source of turnover. So when they divide to give the regeneration, the edit that we made is being carried forward. So that's why there's this durability for years, you know, well beyond the regeneration time. So we expect this medicine, Daniel, this has to be proven, of course, in patients, but um, we expect this medicine to be truly a one and done, durable for the lifetime of the, of the person. So in terms of developing this medicine, Verve 101, what were some of the major challenges that you and your team faced? Well, I mean, to be honest, it's like starting from ground zero. You know, we, this was a concept. And when we started in 2018, we thought maybe naive, well, definitely naively that we could just assemble the parts and make a medicine. Then we quickly learned none of the parts were ready. And we had to actually do a lot of the work ourselves. So that means every component of the drug product there's two drug substances, the mRNA and the guide RNA. Then there are four components, as I mentioned, to the lipid nanoparticle. All of those pieces um, we had to kind of internally develop. Now, the editor, we've licensed in the sequence. We licensed in from a company called Beam Therapeutics. They're the ones who have the IP around the adenine-based editor that we use. But... From what we licensed in, we still had to do a lot of work ourselves to basically refine it to be to get this to be this successful in in non-human primates. The guide we had to screen to find that specific spot, Mitch, in the PCSK9 sequence that would have this level of specificity, where you have this exquisite on-target but no off-target. So we had to do a lot of work to get that. Then we had to package both of these things in a lipid nanoparticle that would have appropriate potency. You infuse in a certain milligram per kilogram dose, and you're getting editing in every, every liver cell without toxicity. 
you know, with acceptable toxicity, I should say. So that all um, was done by our team. You know, so we started the company with a couple of people. We now have in, in four years, we're now 200 people um, working on, on this, on this uh, series of medicines. And uh, we've gone from, again, concept to getting it to work in, in monkeys. And now as of, well, last month, we treated our first patient. Um, this is a patient with familial hypercholesterolemia who's already had a heart attack and who, you know, got our infusion um, as part of a phase one trial. So a lot of challenges along the way, um, really a first in class medicine. So no prior playbook here. Um, and so a lot of problem solving. Yeah. Let's talk about that human trial that you're doing, the phase one trial of VERV 101 in patients with heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. How did you select this patient and why did you decide to start with heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia and how is the trial going? Yeah, yeah so our um, clinical development strategy, you know, has always been this kind of bullseye model of, of uh, development. So the center of the bullseye is the genetic subtype of the disease. You can think about FH as essentially a genetic subtype of, of MI, of heart attack. Um, then broaden out from that genetic subtype to garden variety heart attack. You know, patients without FH. That's like most of us. Then you can broaden out actually to prevention before somebody has a heart attack to prevent that first myocardial infarction. And what's really very interesting and somewhat unique as far as LDL goes, Daniel, is that the same factor, LDL, that you treat, use to treat the disease once the disease is established is, L, is relevant to prevent the disease. So getting somebody's LDL as low as possible for as long as possible is the primary treatment for patients who already have atherosclerosis. It's also the primary approach to prevent atherosclerosis. I mean, think about that. It's, it's actually not that common that it's the case. So think about lung cancer. You know, um, stopping smoking is great to prevent lung cancer. But once you have established lung cancer, stopping smoking is not going to, like, treat that lung cancer. Right? So in, but in LDL, it's different. So because of this property that it's the same for treatment and for prevention, you can use this bullseye model for clinical development. Um, and so that's why we chose FH. The, the risk of FH patients, it's a morbid genetic disease. And what we're offering is a genetic treatment for that genetic disease, a new technology. And you want to try to develop and evaluate that technology with its risks in the patients at highest risk. And so FH kind of represents that subtype of ASCBD with the highest risk. Um, and so that's why we chose heterozygous FH as our initial patient population. Um, but our intent is always to move from there um, to, again, garden variety ASCVD as well. Now, the trial, the phase one trial, is about 40 patients, all with HEFH, heterozygous FH, and ASCVD, and who have unacceptably high LDL on oral standard of care. We would be giving them our medicine 
It's designed as a single ascending dose design. So what that means is there are multiple groups, dose groups, and we escalate the dose from group one to group two to group three to group four. And looking to identify the dose of drug that leads to an acceptable level of efficacy and, and safety. Um, and the trial is going well. We, we publicly announced the recruitment of our first patient and recruitment is ongoing. And um, we expect to announce data. So the degree of LDL lowering, the degree of blood PCSK9 lowering, the safety data, data uh, next year in 2023. I'm curious, I saw that the clinical site was in New Zealand. Why was New Zealand chosen as the uh, clinical site? We have a, a global regulatory strategy with three countries, New Zealand, UK, and the US. New Zealand is the place that we just got our first clearance. Um, the reason to do a global strategy is those two countries, well, US is obvious as to why, but the UK and U New Zealand, because those are the two countries where there has been one other study done with standard CRISPR-Cas9 for in vivo liver editing by a company called Intellia Therapeutics, focused on a target called TTR, which causes amyloidosis. Um, and uh, they have uh, already treated patients with a CRISPR medicine uh, to knock out TTR in the liver. And their trial was entirely done in the UK and New Zealand. And so these two countries have, the regulatory agency in these two countries have prior experience seeing these kind of applications. So that's the reason we chose those two countries beyond the US. But as you know, FH is prevalent all over the world and it's about a one in 250 prevalence worldwide. You mentioned earlier acceptable toxicity and in the trial you did on non-human primates, there was this AST, ALT elevations due to the lipid nanoparticles that were mild to moderate. With the non-human primates, were there any other toxicities um, associated with the actual technology? It's a great question. Um, and the answer, short answer is no. Um, there's a tr lipid nanoparticles have a well-known adverse effect profile with the one-time infusion. There's a transient rise and fall with ALT and AST. And what we see, we see that in the monkeys, and it's a modest rise. Um, but again, comes back down within a week or two. And then um, we've looked at the monkeys in terms of biopsy uh, at, at two weeks, and then at the liver tissue on histopathology, serially and all the way out to like two years at necropsy. And there's no cellular damage evident um, based on that one-time infusion. Um, so it does really look like it's a transient rise and fall, and we don't see any other uh, adverse effects. Um, and then, you know, as I said, we're treating our first patient. And so we'll have to see what the AE profile, the adverse effect profile looks like in patients, of course. So what do you view as the future applications of this technology? You know, it, it seems like you can use it for all sorts of diseases, including diabetes and cancer. Is Verve going to focus specifically on cardiovascular disease or branch out into these other areas and uh, diseases as well? Our primary focus is atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And our mission is to develop 
single course gene editing medicines to essentially eradicate ASCBD. Now, given that it's the leading cause of death in the world, that's a big enough mission in some sense. We don't need to go and try to do something else. Um, but um, but we, we have, um, given the, some of the capabilities we've developed in in vivo liver editing, um, we are um, being opportunistic and potentially exploring um, other liver targets as well. Uh, but our, our focus is largely ASCVD. And I see a future of the one-and-done medicine for LDL lowering, um, you know, starting with the FH patients, but then imagine, like, there's about 20 million patients in the United States right now who have established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So that means they've had a heart attack, they have a, they've had a stroke, they've had uh, peripheral vascular disease, or they've had a bypass surgery or a stent, okay? 20 million people. Every single one of those, Daniel, requires lifelong LDL lowering. And so there could be a future where somebody comes in with a heart attack, they get their stent procedure to, to clear the clogged artery, and maybe at the same time or shortly thereafter, they get our one-time infusion. And then they're done with LDL care for the rest of their life. That's kind of the vision on the secondary prevention side. And then assuming that there's safety and efficacy in that kind of application, you can imagine a future where you're not waiting till somebody has a heart attack, but even earlier, somebody turns 30 or 40, they get our one-time treatment and then they have lifelong LDL lowering and you're able to avert that first heart attack, you know, for, for much, for, 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 for a while. All right. We have a couple rapid fire questions for you to close out the episode. So besides your uh, work, what are one or two important cardiology papers that you feel like more physicians should be familiar with? Cardiology papers is a great question. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm um, um, a really uh, huge proponent of focusing on metabolic disease and particularly weight. So I think something that cardiologists, actually all physicians should be more aware of is this whole class of GLP-1 receptor agonists. Um, so that's ozempic, terzepatide, and everybody should read the, the recent paper in the New England Journal on terzepatide from Eli Lilly. This is a medicine, guys, that caused roughly 22% weight loss. Okay, so that's crazy amount of weight. Um, and all the good things that flow from that. So it lowered blood pressure, it lowered triglycerides, it lowers hemoglobin A1C. Um, it actually has probably good effects on sleep apnea and NASH and all these other things that go with weight. So I think that this is um, going to be, a, it's, a, it's a revolution in the way we approach um, obesity. Because um, as you know, this is probably, besides ASCBD, the, the major problem facing the world. Um, and now we have a, a medicine, actually, that can be quite effective um, uh, for the large fraction of our population that, that, um, uh, that suffers from obesity. We actually had a previous episode 
number 13 on uh, GLP-1 agonists. That was on the uh, semaglutide paper from last year. Um, yeah. After you. Yeah, so that's Ozempic. And uh, now Lily has, I think it's called Manjaro, which is their brand name, uh, Terzepatide, which is a dual agonist uh, of GIP and GLP-1 receptor. Um, and um, it looks even a little bit better than semaglutide um, on um, on the weight part, um, uh, leading to roughly a 22% weight loss on average. What important medical truth do very few of your colleagues agree with you on? Uh, <laughs> this, this goes back to the thing that we didn't talk much about is HDL. So, you know, when I was in medical school, I was taught that uh, anything that raised HDL must be good for you. Um, that HDL was called the good cholesterol. And it turns out, mm, not so sure about that. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, we and others have done some work, particularly on the genetic side, and there's also a lot of drug trials now, that really suggests that HDL is a marker of risk, not a causal factor. So if you have high HDL, you are at lower risk for heart attack but it's probably not because of the HDL. So this observation has some important implications, which is um, HDL is still a, good, still a very useful factor to understand risk, but may not be a good therapeutic target. That if you design a medicine to raise HDL, don't expect it to lower risk of heart attack per se. And that's what has been shown now in a series of clinical trials with different HDL-raising medicines. They all raised HDL, but they didn't lower risk of heart attack. So, um, so that's probably the one, um, one fact or factor. And it's very hard to change people's minds about this. Um, you know, everybody, first of all, it's still called good cholesterol. And that's fine because it, it is a marker of risk. So if you have high HDL, you are at lower risk but it's not a therapeutic target. It shouldn't be a therapeutic target because it doesn't look like it's causal. Um, so this is something that I've you know, tried to, um, and hopefully the textbooks will be rewritten at you know, in some, some time, form, time, time point. But um. Our last rapid fire question. No company can succeed without talent. How did you go about hiring the first five people at Verve? It was using the considerable network of uh, the venture capital companies that funded us. This is one of the good things that they're very, uh, this is one of the things they're very good at. Um, basically, uh, finding and having this network of folks that relish um, coming in early, um, kind of to turn on the lights, and where there's no, again, prior playbook. You got to start from the ground up. But a lot of people who, who thrive in environments where there's a solid foundation already and you have to take the next step, there aren't that many people who relish this kind of like, oh, there's just a hole in the ground and you got to build it, you know? And um, so the venture capital companies have a good network of, of folks and often they're serial entrepreneurs, serial, you know, worked in serial startups. And that's kind of how we got a couple of the, the key folks that, that helped us get off the ground. All right. Thank you so much, Sake, for coming on the External Medicine Podcast. 
Was there anything that we didn't mention that you'd like to talk about before we close? No, I think the, the future of medicine is, is uh, incredibly bright. Um, lots of different possibilities in terms of for all the different diseases that afflict, um, you know, uh, people in our society. And I think, um, you know, we're trying to, uh, you know, really change the way this disease is cared for. And, uh, you know, it's, but it's an experiment, you know, and uh, we'll get the results of that experiment starting next year. And, and um, if everything goes well, you know, um, probably in, you know, the 2028, 2029 timeframe, uh, maybe the two of you will be in a position to write a prescription for Verb 101, you know, um, and that, that would be my wildest dream. Awesome. So for people who are just listening, uh, they want to find out more about you, but they're not going to, they can't look at their phone because they're driving. What, what did you have a Twitter? Where can they, where can they look you up to learn more? Yeah. So I'm very active on Twitter. Um, and so you can always, um, learn more about our work there. Um, also LinkedIn, and then you can feel free to email me. My email is available on the web and, uh, happy to continue the conversation. All right. Well, it was, it was great talking to you and, uh, we're, we're, we're rooting for you. We hope you succeed. And, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, thank you again for coming on the My show. Pleasure. Thank you so much for hosting. Thank you so much. If you'd like to support us, here are some ways you can help. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, preferably a phenomenal review. Visit us at externalmedicinepodcast.com and tell your friends. 